0: Uh, this is normally where I introduce the guest speaker, but it's not. It's me introducing myself. If we have not met, my name is Sam. Uh, I'm the uh, lead pastor here, and it is a privilege every week to study and to prepare to bring something that comes from God and not from me. I hope that, that uh, it, when the sermon's over, you forget about me and you're thinking about God, and that's my goal. And so today, it is a powerful passage. It is one about that, that, I, that brings peace and helps us to relent from pursuits and to find what really matters in life. And uh, I'm excited to get to it. Jesus once taught this parable. He talks about there's several types of soil that represent people. And what it is, is it's the way that we respond to the true wisdom of the gospel, God's truth, what comes from heaven, that message to us, and how we respond. He says some seed, uh, or some soil, which is some people are like a uh, the soil that, uh, that has birds all around, and the seed gets scattered onto it on the, on the road with the birds, and the birds come and they snatch it away in the same way that Satan would come and wisdom gets scattered out and then it gets twisted and morphed with, with half-truth and, and with, with contradictions, and it gets pulled away by the dark powers of this world. Other, are like, uh, rocky places where the seed hits the ground and it sprouts up very quickly because it has nowhere for the roots to go. All the life goes up, and it looks great at first, But as soon as the scorching temperatures come, it dies and withers. And this is those people that receive God's message with excitement, but they have no roots. They're not rooted with people. They're not rooted in relationships. They're not rooted in wisdom. And as soon as the scorching temperatures of life hit them, they fail. But the kind that I'm most interested in talking about today is the kind that is mentioned in verse 14 of Luke. Luke 8 Uh, verse 14 says, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. I find it very interesting that anxiety and riches are presented as two sides of the same coin, because indeed they are. Uh, the statistics show that of last year, 41% of divorces listed the number one reason why was financial concerns. Differences of how to spend money or financial stress. Inner peace uh, by wealth is routinely proven itself to be a lie. We had a men's retreat years ago, and we had Jerry Cook uh, come out and speak. He's, he's a very uh, influential leader in the Foursquare Church in in our area, uh, his church planted our church back in the day. And so Jerry Cook came, and he said something. I know it's not a Jerry Cook original, but it's good, and he's the one I heard it from, so I quote him when I say it. He said, we spend our lives working jobs we hate, to buy things we don't need, to impress people we don't even like. <laughs> and uh, an awfully cynical version of the American dream, but he, uh, he's brutally honest. You know, there's a reason why we call articles of wealth the trappings of wealth. There is a trapping nature about it, and so potent is the trap that it doesn't take being a Christian to recognize it. You know the, the song, Hotel California by the Eagles? Uh, for, did you know they used to say that song is about writing of the Satanic Bible, which actually is not true? First off, it's not about the Satanic Bible. The Satanic Bible is not written in Hotel California. Um, it was written elsewhere, but uh, what it is, is the, the band The Eagles, they grew up together as, as kids, and they, the, down the street from them was this fancy hotel called Hotel California, and back in the 60s and 50s in that time, people would go, uh, just to go have a weekend at a hotel nearby, which is crazy to me. I would never do that. If I had a weekend, I'm not going to go stay in a hotel. Uh, somewhere nearby. I'm going to go somewhere fun, but apparently that was a thing, and they'd sit around the pool. It was very opulent, very wealthy, and so for them growing up, this hotel represented this this uh, Southern California materialism to them. And so when they write the song, they mix it with this these hellscape sort of lyrics uh, of how deceptive it is, how, how sweet it is on the inside, and, and insidious it is, uh, or it brings you in on the outside, insidious on the inside. And there's this this overwhelming hunger that can't be satiated, they refer to. When they say, uh, in the master's chamber, they gather for the feast. They stab it with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. That materialism is a hunger unto itself. And lives are lavishly wasted on the troubles of this life, seeking wealth and finding peace through something that can never deliver. So what if the wisdom literature of Scripture gave us a route around it, to get around it and to find another path? And that's the proverb, one of the Proverbs we'll be reading today, Proverbs 23, uh, 4 through 5, saying 8 of the, saying, of the seventh saying, Do not wear yourself out to get rich, do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout ring, wings and they will fly uh, off to the sky like an eagle. Blessings, natural blessings. Uh, They're good, but we spoil them for ourselves. And the warning here isn't be careful because your wealth could flee away and leave you. So really, if you lived your whole life and didn't have massive economic financial disaster, you're fine, you got everything perfect. The point is, is how fleeting and how uh, indiscriminate and unsatisfying wealth really is. You see, we have these blessings from God, but we spoil it. God wants to bless us and to take care of us. We can sometimes put too much of a definition of what blessing is. Jesus said it's having enough food that you're not starving, enough clothing that you're not naked. If that's the baseline, then maybe we should adjust our expectations. But if we take them, we can turn them septic in several ways. You see, there's a there's a God-ordained uh, creation order. That, 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 that when, of all the things created, at the top is the bearers of his image, humanity. They bear what is called in Christian theology imago Dei, the image of God upon them. It is a sacred thing, and, their po- and the point of them is to be at the top of creation, all things submitted below them, and they disseminate, and they send out the life of God, and they administrate His creation. But there is a sick reversal that we can see where a person stops, uh, where they don't have things existing for their existence, but they exist for the thing itself, chasing wealth itself to have these things itself. It's a sick reversal when the things we want are what we live for, and they rule over us. It's one of the reasons why materialism in Scripture is so commonly called idol worship. You know, we think about uh, do our interests, our hobbies, the technologies, the things we pursue, do they serve a grander purpose of being the Imago Dei? The things you have, do they serve you in this grander purpose under God? Do they build you up spiritually to, and stimulate that, or do you live to simply attain them? I remember hearing a story from my youth pastor. His name was Mike Wilday, and he said that when he was a kid, he walked into a diner with his mom, and there was this, this classic car, beautiful paint job, deep, sort of cherry, golden, wonderful red, and as he went by, he, he ran his finger along, and it. it looked so smooth. And as as he's doing this, this guy bursts out of the diner. He's screaming, eyes bulging. He's completely losing his temper. He's like, that's a new paint job. The paint's still soft. You're ruining it. And just freaked, uh, freaked them both out. And oddly enough, his mom took that guy's side instead of being like, you need to calm down. She's like, don't, Mike. No. It's a new paint job. But it's this amazing moment where we, in that moment, I think of that story often because that car was in charge of that man at that moment. When we let the things we own get inside and they command our inner world, how we feel, how we respond, how we react, that is when idol worship is being completed in us through our materialism, that it commands us and directs us. And one thing it did between him and looking at little Mike Wilde is it didn't, he could not see the importance of that young child and being more important than his car. He missed the Imago Day completely, not only Does our materialism rule our, make it to our things, rule our internal life? They make us miss the image of God and others. So as we spoil this, I see two main ways we spoil it. One is what I call looking over the fence, envy, and the things that varnish what God gave us. There's this interesting thing that was done. I heard it in a TED Talk, but they did this experiment at this college where they offered a, a free photography course, and all these students are like, oh, that sounds great, and they took it, and they took pictures, and they developed them in the dark room. And they put all this work into it. They had two classes. To one class, they said, uh, we, "You need to pick one picture, and we need to send all the other ones you took to headquarters to prove we put on this free course." And like, they're all like, you know, really gullible. It's like, oh, headquarters apparently needs our photos. So they they just believed this lie. And they picked their favorite photo. And and what the professor told them is he said, you can take them all home. Take all your photos home. Each person took about six. And they said, take some time to think about it. Next week, uh, keep the one you want, and we'll mail the other ones back. And to the other class, they said the same thing. We got to send them to headquarters, and you get to keep one. And they said, but shucky darn, the mail guy gets the leaves in five minutes. You need to pick right now no time to think about it, grab your favorite photo, they're leaving now the rest of them. So the other class just got rid of their photos, the other ones took it home, and then it was about four months later they did a survey with both students to ask them how satisfied were they with the photo that they kept. The ones that had to choose very quickly, they loved it. They said, oh, I love my photograph, it's in my dorm, it's great, I very much enjoy it. But the ones that went back and compared and spent the time laboring over them were far less satisfied. And they would say things like, ah, I wish I would've kept the other one. I should've kept the black and white. I should've kept that portrait. They find, uh, uh, and the point was is that we, when we uh, analyze things too long, we varnish them on our own eyes. There's market research that says that if, the longer you research something before you buy it, the less you're gonna like it when you get it. (laughs) So you spend all this time, you're like, I'm really glad I got the iPhone because I know it has this many pixels. I know exactly how many it's got. It's got a great camera. But ah, dang it, I know the Samsung had a better screen. And now every time I power up my phone, I just see the stupid screen. That's not as good as the Samsung I thought about getting. And we find ourselves less satisfied with the things that we get. You just go pull it off the shelf, you will be happier. No reading, no research, just do it. We spend so much time comparing that everything seems gray, That nothing seems great. It varnishes the things in our eyes that we don't just simply accept what God gave us. And we can be envious of things that are real and fake. We could be envious of the fact that there are people that honestly put in less work than you in the exact same career field as you are that are more successful than you. That's the reality that we all live with. Or people that, that that did worse or did something lighter, didn't put any of the effort we put in the hard things because wealth isn't fair. It's indiscriminate. It's not intelligent. It goes where it goes and does not always go to the most deserving. So whether it's a dream we compare our lives to or someone's actual real life, as we look over the fence, comparing and looking back and not simply accepting the simple blessings we have and moving on, we varnish what God has given us and we say to ourselves, I know it'll fix it, I need more. Wealth is lifeless. It is unthinking, it's unreasoning, it goes where it wants to go, it's not always fair to worship it is idolatry. Because when we worship things that are dead, unliving, uncaring for us, that's idolatry, the worship of idols. Uh, Number two is by looking into a mirror. What I mean is is that uh, the way that we abuse the blessings God gives us through the vanity as we see it as belonging to us. There's this interesting warning in Deuteronomy. And you've got to remember, leading up to Deuteronomy, you've got nomadic people that are fed miraculously every morning by bread that falls from the sky. I mean, how do you forget who's taking care of you at that point? Like, God's taking you to breakfast every single day. You know who's taking care of you. And they, they're being led by pillars of smoke and fire, miracles. God's pouring out the law. And there's this warning about when they get there. All this leading up to the blessing. Here's a warning about when they get there in Deuteronomy 8. It says when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget that the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I don't know about you, but I sound a lot like I need that warning a lot, <laughs> that, that I'm never more honest, I'm never more integritous than when God first blesses me. But then as I begin to take the credit for it, and I begin to say, well, I, thought, I mean, like, I worked for that. I begin to handle it very differently. And there's this reality that sometimes the deepest worship is born out of going back and recalling to memory what the Lord did. We need to remember that God brought us up from the days that we slept on the futon and ate Kraft macaroni and cheese five nights a week. God turned things in our favor. At best, our part was obedience to his plan. It says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, meaning that he has the world's wealth in his hand, and he can direct it to care for his people however he wants that the impoverished might find that they just have what they need, the miraculous things. I felt that way when I shared a story a while ago about my insurance company, the medical company, getting in a fight and somehow my copay got paid. And then I had like free health care for a year. That was amazing. That, I can't afford free health care for a year. But God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But we forget this, that if he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it means he owns your hill. He gave you your hill. We are most honest at the beginning of a blessing, but it's the time that goes by that imprints some arrogance. I think when it comes to our material wealth, it's important to remember where you came from, to remember how troubled you once were, the struggles that you had, and to remember this, you own none of your wealth. You are a steward of something of just a small portion of God's vast resources. And if we're really honest, we're still that desperate and impoverished person who's just a little further along in God's blessings at this point. You're still that frightened kid, that new person who who set out and negotiated the first rent on your apartment or bought your first car not knowing what to do. The Lord still cares for you that way. Do not look in the mirror so often that we would take credit for that. So what does Jesus have to say about forgetful and vain greed? i have got a, another little parable we'll be reading. You see, uh, someone came to Jesus with a dispute about an inheritance one day. And he says to the, he, the man comes to Jesus and says, Lord, tell my brother to share with me the inheritance. And like most inheritance debates, this is going to have uh, deep roots in materialism. And Jesus chooses this moment to teach something profound, this moment when a family is facing real loss of someone's life, and instead of remaining together and being close, they're at each other's throats over material things. That is the context of this story. It says in Luke 12, he responds to that question like this. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. I'm not going to lie. That sounds kind of nice. Verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get? Uh, what you have prepared for yourself. And this is how it will be, Jesus says, with anyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. An interesting parable because building storehouses is a perfectly reasonable, prudent thing to do. And we talked about this over the last several weeks as we've been on our Proverbs series about biblical wisdom is is knowing what to do, had the prudent decision in the moment but not everything that is prudent in life is prudent in eternity. I mean, bear this in mind. God is not anti-barn at all. He doesn't just hate barns. That's not, there's, this is no systematic theology of anti-barnness. In fact, I would say that this story is extremely similar to Joseph in Egypt. They have a grand harvest, and God pours wisdom on him to build big barns and to store it up for the years that are ahead. which really dispels the idea that God always backs certain ideas and doesn't back others. Because sometimes you build barns, and sometimes you're not supposed to. And the only thing that separates the two men is that Joseph asked God, God, what are we supposed to do with it? And this man did not. One is submitted in what he has, and the other one is not. Sometimes you're supposed to build barns and store the grain for a rainy day, and sometimes you're supposed to take that surplus and give it to the poor. And this man made his own choices. What divides them is not what they do, but whether their plans are submitted to God. And therein lies the point. He stored riches up for himself, but was poor towards God. He spent his life preparing the man in this parable for what happened this side of the grave and not uh, in putting any thought or consideration to his eternal purpose. I would say this, and I think this is one of the great warnings of this passage, because you read that and it's not a bad financial plan, it's prudent, it's pragmatic. Be careful of the many voices that say what you're doing with your wealth seems wise and prudent, because there's only one voice that matters that it matters most above all. What does the Lord say you're supposed to do with your material blessings? You can hear powerful testimonies of people that are, that are millionaires and they, they invest money and they get returns back and they donate. And I, would, and I just uh, believe their testament, the Lord is doing great things through them. And then you hear testimonies from people like Shane Claiborne. If you've never heard of this guy, he's given everything away and decided to live as a homeless man forever in a community with other homeless people ministering to them. I don't know if God is necessarily pro-billionaire or pro-homeless. Uh, he just is pro for you doing whatever he wants you to do that we would have submitted lives. This man never prays or submits his plans to God about what should be done. Investment in God is not always going to overlap with financial prudence. There are some things the Lord's going to ask us to do that won't always make sense, and it's important that we listen, that we listen carefully. It says that in these latter days that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on everyone, and we can hear the Lord and be directed by God. We have someone to submit our plans to that we can get confirmation from and be directed by. We live in a kingdom under a king's resources, so we should be submitted to him and all he has for us. And at this point, whether you command great wealth or you command very little, you can handle it with integrity because it doesn't rule over you, and it is submitted and you know who owns it. I see two great applications here. One is don't trust in your wealth, saying that our life is uh, all set because of the wealth that we have, that because we, that I have a certain amount, that that's, that's the thing I find my peace in and my comfort in, because I'll tell you, the poor man and the rich man have the same assurance at the end of the day. It's God. Whether they recognize it or not, they have the same So we do not trust in our wealth and secondly we don't hope on our wealth or hope in wealth that we don't have i mean to say thinking that if we feed the hunger if we get the things if we buy the house we want if it looks like the kind of life that we see on our phones that we wish we had that we would be at peace because if you had everything you desired in life and were right where you wanted to be you would be back to where you started That God's presence is the only thing that you need for your life to be whole and complete. It is God or bust. Whether you're rich or poor, it is God or bust. So don't wait until you've tested every shallow pool in this life to realize that the only one that's deep, that is life-giving, that you would want, whether you are rich or poor, is the same one, and it's accessible to you right here, right now. to appreciate the goodness that God has with you today because those who are in Christ, those who are with the Lord, are the wealthiest of all. Life is opened to us. Things are made uh, possible to us that whether you are rich or poor, the peace of God may rest on you. When things don't rule your life, but the things that you have are submitted beneath you and submitted to the one whose image you are made in, that everything we own would be his. Our wealth would be his. The things we own are his. And a hunger dies away and is replaced by the hunger that was always there for eternity and for God. I want to pray for us today. God, I ask that as we we consider what's in our hands, and the things that aren't in our hands, the things we wish that were, that we could be directed by your spirit right now to be healed, to relent from a pursuit that stress and wealth can be the same side of the coin. But Lord, you can take that same thing and remint that coin to something else, that it would be uh, resources, our, our own wealth, whether it's great or small, in submission to God. Lord, I pray that we would stop comparing ourselves to those around us. The things we see online, the dreams that we wish we had, the way we second guess ourselves and the careers that we picked, but Lord, would we see them as small static below the great and awesome calling that is in our life to be yours and to belong to you. Lord, today we submit all of our resources to you. Not expecting or putting on an expectation of exactly what you'll say, You may say, build a barn. You may say, give it away. But in all things, Lord, we're submitted to you. Let us walk with you and abide with you and be directed by you. And let not our material things get between us, God. Change our hearts this morning. In your name I pray, amen.